Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Henry Petrosky, a professor of civil engineering and history at Duke University. Dr. Petrosky is a prolific scholar and public intellectual. In addition to publishing 19 books and hundreds of articles in newspapers, magazines, and trade publications, he's authored over 75 academic journal articles. His many books include The Pencil, A History of Design and Circumstance, The Evolution of Useful Things, The House with 16 Handmade Doors, and The Road Taken, The History and Future of America's Infrastructure. Dr. Petrosky, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Glad to be with you. Now, I just thought I'd start by asking you how you got interested in design as an area of study in the first place. What uh, drew you to the field? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, like a lot of uh, young engineering academics, uh, design was uh, almost a bad word. We, you know, we were interested in theory, uh, not in design. So uh, my graduate study uh, involved a lot of mathematics and theoretical mechanics. Uh, but then I found myself in a, in a position a few years after uh, getting my PhD uh, where I was uh, teaching engineering. Uh, I was uh, registered as a professional engineer. I uh, had a title of professor of engineering. And uh, when my neighbors, my lay people uh, living in the neighborhood, would ask me questions about engineering, uh, some which basically boiled down to, uh, you know, why is it you can't you engineers do things right the first time? Uh, I began to think about engineering, and that's when I decided I wanted to write a book that uh, would be accessible to the non-engineer as well as to uh, engineers. And in the course of writing that book, uh, I discovered that design is, is in fact, uh, central to engineering. Everything else is in service to design. So uh, this really was a, a life-changing experience. Uh, I found myself writing this book, and the title of it turned out to be To Engineer is Human. Uh, the role of failure in successful design. And it was prompted largely by a lot of failures, a lot of accidents that were happening around this time. This was the early 1980s. And uh, in the course of writing that book, and uh, the book was published, the uh, re reading reviews and corresponding with, with readers, I realized that what I was saying about engineering, and in particular, large engineering structures also had a lot to do with uh, small uh, things and with the design process generally. So that's what really got me involved with, with design. And now, in addition to being an engineer, you're also an historian. And so it's kind of a fascinating combination to me. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how these fields go together. I mean, what does your understanding of history bring to your understanding of design and, and, and failure and, and vice versa? Well, in the course of writing that book, To Engineer is Human, uh, I, I basically was, in scientific terms, uh, presenting a hypothesis about the interrelationship between success and failure. And if you have a hypothesis, uh, you need to test it. 
So I thought, now where am I going to test this rather soft hypothesis, soft in the sense that it didn't involve mathematical equations or things like that. And, and that's where I said, well, I'll look to the historical record. Um, and failures, that's a category that has been addressed in the historical record for, for millennia, literally from millennia. Uh, what is generally considered the oldest book on engineering, namely Vitruvius, uh, talks about failure. Galileo, uh, in his book from the 17th century, that uh, talks about failure. Uh, and uh, it became clear uh, that uh, history and uh, what I was doing and theorizing about success could really be married and uh, benefit each other. So I relied on, on historical, uh, uh, the historical record and historical uh, documents, historical incidents uh, to serve as the, the data, so to speak, that helped me confirm my hypothesis that uh, if you want to have a successful design, you've got to consider failure from the outset. Our first sponsor today is DaVinci. In today's digital business world, face-to-face -face meetings still do matter, but you can skip those noisy coffee shops or expensive hotel conference if you want, you want to know what they cost and just book a da vinci meeting room i was talking to the uh to the people who started this this idea is it's a brilliant plant thing it's like it's like kind of like airbnb for meetings it's like wow i heard about it why hasn't anyone thought about this before well someone has a da vinci they provide you with instant access to over five thousand incredibly affordable meeting rooms in well-known office locations in every city and they make it really easy all you have to do is search book and meet and your davinci meeting room comes fully staffed and equipped with all the latest tech plus high-speed internet and whether you need a you know an office for the day or a conference room a boardroom a training space whatever it is davinci has what you need to make your next business meeting a success and Best of all, this is really important, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. No kidding. So, you know, entrepreneurs, startups, Fortune 500 companies, they all enhance their images with professional meeting spaces, which this is what you can get from DaVinci. Again, wonderful idea. And you can book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And the first hour is on them. Again, that's davincimeeting.com slash TPG, and your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply, and for details, see davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? Uh, now, speaking of failure, I guess is sort of my segue. One of the reasons I've really been looking forward to talking with you has to do with what a lot of people feel is a failure in modern uh, American politics and engineering, which is uh, uh, our national infrastructure. I mean, in recent years, it's been a big policy issue and, and a really big concern. And so just as a kind of a broad view, how bad would you say infrastructure is in the United States at this point? Well, um, you know, most of us individually know infrastructure anecdotally. We, we know the roads we drive on, the bridges we drive across, and so forth. Uh, one organization that tries to look at the infrastructure as a whole is the American Society of Civil Engineers. And uh, they issue report cards on the infrastructure every four years. They grade it. 
and they've been doing this for about the past 20 years. Uh, so uh, it's as close to, I would say, a uh, numerical evaluation of the infrastructure that we have. And the average grade they've been giving the infrastructure is D or D plus. It, it hasn't differed from D or D plus for 20 years. Uh, they look at subdivisions of the infrastructure like highways, uh, roads and bridges. And uh, those uh, vary a little more, but, but obviously if the average comes out to be D plus, overall the infrastructure is in trouble, or some people, you might say, are saying it's failing. And that's one of the things that, you know, attracted me to uh, look into the infrastructure a little more carefully, because having studied failure so much and having ideas about failure, this uh, became very interesting to me, especially because of its uh, broader, broader uh, involvement of society in government and decision-making. Uh, financing, budgeting, and uh, so forth. So, so uh, that was always in the back of my mind when I wrote my book on infrastructure, the book called The Road Taken. Right. Now, it, it seems to me, at least that this is my, my anecdotal sense of things, is that pretty much every big infrastructure project I can think of in the United States, uh, at least in modern times, ends up late and over budget and sometimes very late and extremely over budget. And I'm wondering if that just general sense I have is a, a fair assessment. And, and if it is, why is it that it seems so difficult to get the right cost and the right timeline for these big projects? Well, uh, actually, it's, it's, uh, in my opinion, it shouldn't be that difficult. The question is uh, the human factor, perhaps the best way to put it. Uh, it big projects go out for bids, and uh, the bids uh, uh, determine who gets the project, what corporation. And if we're talking about big projects these days, what are called mega projects, we're talking about a billion dollars plus, generally speaking. Uh, so uh, when the economy is poor, uh, when uh, things are not as uh, you know, op op optimistic from a business point of view as people would like, uh, they tend to be overly optimistic in their bids sometime, in their estimates of how fast they can do the project or how uh, inexpensively they can do it. Then there's also the legal factor. Uh, if something goes wrong, even before the project is completed during construction, and then there are lawsuits, and these can tie up a project, uh, delay it, snarl it. Uh, and then there are questions of ethics. Uh, is, is everybody really playing, uh, playing straight? Uh, is there graft? Is there corruption involved? And, and these are this is nothing new. This this is uh, documented uh, well again in in history. Uh, now the question is: uh, Are there uh, projects that are on time and under budget? And the answer is yes. The reason I think we think that they are the the exception rather than the rule is because 
uh, it's sort of like uh, in the newspaper, uh, a dog bites man is not a story, but man bites bites dog is a story. So it's the it's the the unusual that gets the press, and and paradoxically, then the unusual uh, tends to be thought of as the usual. Uh, but there are examples. There's a bridge being built in New York uh, State, upsta- uh, uh, just north of New York City, called the Tappan Zee Bridge, and it's opening just today, I believe. It's been under construction for several years, but it's on time and uh, on budget. Uh, it has its own problem, which I'll get to in, in a minute. But the reason, uh, one of the reasons, that that bridge could be uh, completed uh, so efficiently, let's say, is that uh, when he was president, President Obama uh, expedited a a certain number of showcase uh, infrastructure projects. He wanted to show that his administration was really doing good things for the infrastructure. So in this case of the Tappan Zee Bridge, uh, he fast-tracked the environmental impact statement and other regulatory uh, procedures, uh, which are are often blamed for uh, uh, some of the slowing down of of infrastructure projects. Uh, The snag is (laughs) that New York Bridge, to the best of my knowledge, is not, they they may be coming in on budget, but nobody knows where the money is coming from exactly. Uh, so, so that's a further complication, uh, and uh, that that uh, of course is is not something that uh, we should want to have to live with because that that introduces a lot of uncertainty. And for those people who use bridges like that to commute, uh, they know darn well that 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 means they can't budget there. Uh, they can't uh, budget for what the toll is going to be from year to year because uh, if you have to make up money, you're going to come out of the toll uh, tolls uh, as the first uh, recourse. Right. You know, I, so I think it's a really interesting point you make about how the 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 dog that doesn't bark doesn't get the uh, the news, and that maybe where we are overestimating how bad projects are. But so I guess I want to turn that around a little bit because I have this idea in my mind, and I think maybe a lot of people do that there used to be a golden age of infrastructure in the United States, and I, to me this is the 1930s. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed ahead of schedule and came in under budget. And the Empire State Building, just, I think, like 441 days to build uh, ahead of time and under budget. I mean, was this a, a different special kind of time? And if so, what, what was different there? Well, of course, it was the Depression. And uh, it was uh, easier to expedite things, if, especially if uh, jobs were involved. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge is a darling of, of you know people who have in infrastructure but uh it may have been built fast but there was another bridge across san francisco bay that was built faster uh, or at least opened up earlier and that's the uh, san francisco oakland bay bridge uh, that's not been such a glamorous uh, bridge until recently when they um, rebuilt the uh, east bay part but 
that was the largest infrastructure, highway infrastructure project in the country up until then, at about $75 million. It was a, it was a greater engineering challenge, uh, vastly admired. Uh, it had some problems in the earthquake of 1989. That's uh, why it got rebuilt on the eastern half. But the uh, Golden Gate Bridge also has had its problems, which are not widely known or widely, well, I don't know, accepted. Uh, to save money, to you know, make it come in under budget, uh, sometimes you cut corners. And one of the ways that corners were cut, and I don't necessarily mean that uh, in any illegal way, but uh, making the Golden Gate Bridge as light as possible. If you make it as light as possible, you use as little steel as possible. Um, and steel, the weight of steel is very highly correlated with the cost of the, the project. But when the um, Golden Gate was completed and it began to experience strong winds, it became clear that uh, it was not as stiff as it should be to uh, uh, withstand the high winds of the strait there. Uh, so uh, eventually, uh, and I'm talking about within a decade, I believe it was, uh, a lot more steel was added to the Golden Gate Bridge, making it a heavier but stiffer bridge. And I'm talking mainly now about the road. But there are unintended consequences, and this is what also complicates infrastructure and, of course, a lot of design projects. And that is that uh, because the, uh, the additional steel uh, added to the Golden Gate Bridge uh, was done just to stiffen it, now when a lot of people would love to add a second deck so it could carry more traffic or uh, carry the metro to BART system, say, up to Marin County, that can't be done because that would add steel and weight beyond what the bridge would be able to withstand. So, so the Golden Gate Bridge is, is a darling, but uh, I think it's unfortunate that it's uh, maybe overly admired. It, it, engineers were asked back in the, I think it was the mid 50s, uh, what is the, uh, you know, what are the greatest engineering achievements in the US in the first 50 years of the 20, 20th century, I believe. And the Golden Gate Bridge was not on the list. It was the Oakland Bridge. Uh, so uh, it was only uh, later in the century when the Golden Gate Bridge had, and, and largely when its history had been forgotten, that it got raised to uh, more of a cult status. Huh. Interesting. So. So then, if, if I understand correctly, it sounds like that in earlier times, because of a, a much looser, I guess you could call it regulatory environment, uh, uh, things could perhaps go up a little quicker. Uh, but but in today's world, certainly there's a lot more red tape, a lot more boxes one needs to check off, whether it's environmental or other things. So uh, if that's right, well, first of all, is that more or less right? And if so, do you think that's a worthwhile trade-off that we've made? I, I don't know that I'd put it that, that things were looser back then. I don't think there was a disregard for life, for example. Um, uh, or, or safety. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, I'll say something in its favor, it was one of the first 
big engineering project uh, where the workers wore hard hats, uh, which uh, obviously protected them if something dropped on their head. Uh, the uh, fact of the matter is that the technology of making projects safer was not exactly in place yet. Uh, but you can, you know, in trying to compensate, you can go too far the other way. I believe I read recently, and I, I, I would only, I'll say this without uh, being able to document it immediately, um, but I believe it was, this is the figure I read, the average, um, let's see, time it takes for a large project to clear all the uh, regulatory hurdles is something like seven years. Now, that's incredible. Uh, if I'm remembering that correctly, so there is that caveat. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's, everybody, I think, agrees that it takes a long time. This New York State Bridge, the Patton Z Bridge, that just opened, that was all compressed into two years, and and a big deal was made out of compressing it into two years. So whatever the average is, it's over two years. Our second sponsor today is SeatGeek, a great low-cost, super convenient way to buy tickets for live events. With SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed. It only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website like old guys like I do, SeatGeek.com. You know, I've used it both on the app on my phone. I do have the app on my phone and SeatGeek.com. And Either way you do it, it's really quick, really easy, really informative. I just pulled it up just a few seconds ago and found out, for instance, that, hey, I can see the Foo Fighters. The Foo Fighters are coming to Cincinnati uh, not uh, in the not-too-distant future. I think that would probably be pretty cool to see. Wouldn't have known about it if not for SeatGeek. Also, I can get some really great prices on the Steelers-Bengals game, and that's something I'm certainly going to want to watch as a, as a big Steelers fan. And, you know, so plus with SeatGeek, you get updates on – whatever, you know, venues, events, performers you want to keep track of. And you can even connect it up with Spotify, with your music library, with Facebook, and get notifications about artists you listen to, artists you follow, that sort of thing. But, you know, if you don't like notifications, easy to turn it off. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and the time of the event on your calendar if you want. Well, that's really convenient. I like that idea. Best of all, Politics Guys listeners, you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter code promo code, code promo code politicsguy today. That's promo code politicsguy for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase, either on the app or at SeatGeek.com. Try it out. I know you're going to really love it. Now, do you know if this is an international phenomenon or is this sort of a regulatory delay, something that's unique to the United States that other uh, rich developed countries don't really experience to the same extent that we do? I think, I think it's a, a, an international phenomenon in Western countries. I think maybe less so in, say, China. Uh, China has been building its infrastructure in leaps and bounds. Um, some very, very impressive projects, uh, you know, record spans, record bridges, uh, and uh, they're very attractive. Uh, I've uh, written on some of the new highways in China, and I was very impressed. Uh, uh, they were in very, very good condition. Of course, they were very 
they had very low usage, which one of the reasons our infrastructure is in poor condition is it's heavy, heavy usage. Uh, you know, highways or bridges that uh, opened up and were designed to carry maybe 20,000 vehicles now carry 100,000 or more, you know, five or more times what they were designed for. Well, that is what directly uh, diminishes their lifetime and accelerates their deterioration. Uh, uh, I, I was traveling in Europe recently, driving on their roads. Uh, the, the, uh, I was driving on some German uh, Autobahn uh, roads. Uh, they were in very good condition, but they've had that reputation for, for decades, almost a century, in fact. Uh, in fact, uh, they are often cited as a model for our interstate system. Uh, President Eisenhower experienced the Autobahns in, when, during his service in uh, Germany and uh, uh, wanted to, uh, I won't say duplicate them, but uh, emulate them in his support for the uh, interstate highway system, uh, which uh, is now, legislative support, his, uh, uh, you know, the bully pulpit that he had is, is what uh, got that interstate uh, built. The, the idea was around for decades in this country, interrupted by the war, of course. But Eisenhower was predisposed, once he took office, um, to uh, make the interstate highway system a reality. And he did that, uh, basically. And how a lot of things happen to this day, uh, he established a means by which the federal government would pay 90% of the cost of building the interstate highway system. That's a pretty tempting uh, carrot to hold before a state highway department. Um, but of course, uh, he didn't necessarily uh, explain how they were going to be maintained and kept up and expanded. And that's the problem that we actually are, are in today. I don't blame Eisenhower for this lack of uh, foresight because I think uh, just about anybody in his position would have done the same thing. But as you may know, uh, the, 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 where the uh, money for the federal government contributing so much to the building of roads and bridges comes from is the gasoline tax. And uh, therein lies another main reason why our infrastructure is in, in real, real uh, danger. Uh, the gasoline tax has not been raised for over 20 years. And that means that the revenue going into the Highway Trust Fund, as it's called, where that money comes from to build and maintain and expand and so forth, has not been keeping up with the need, with the demand. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how this can be done, but uh, ultimately I think the way it's going to have to be done is that the states are going to have to shoulder more responsibility. I think from what I hear coming out of Washington, uh, that's where uh, government represent our representatives in Washington uh, are leaning uh, to. Uh, the, the the, that puts the federal government out of the road and uh, bridge funding project. By the way, the 
the, the interstates are not owned by the federal government. They're owned by the individual states through which they pass. The Constitution doesn't authorize the federal government to own or even to just build roads. Um, so there has to be a circuitous way. But when the uh, interstate highway system was first being built in the late 50s, it started pretty much, uh, there were a lot of uh, old complaints stories in the newspaper, reports, that uh, there was a lot of graft and corruption going on. That, that was one of the reasons why things were costing so much. And uh, then that feeds into, oh, well, if you don't want to go along with this game, uh, we'll just drag our feet and things will take longer. And then this leads us to why things, uh, why interstate pro interest, uh, infrastructure projects go over budget and uh, take more time than they, they have to. It's uh, not a pretty game, but it is a game that seems to be played. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that given how dependent uh, the, the maintenance infrastructure is currently on that, on that gas tax, on that, on that fund, and it hasn't gone up, the, the logical thing that most people would immediately say is, well, why, why don't we just index, raise that and index it to inflation? And we've essentially solved our problem as opposed to what it sounds like you're suggesting maybe the federal government's thinking of is passing the buck to the states. And of course, many of the states are in much worse financial uh, situation than, than the federal government. So, I mean, am I, am I getting something wrong here? No, the, it's just that the federal, the, the, the senators and the, uh, representatives in Washington, they don't care about the state. That's their problem. That's the problem of the states to figure out how to do it. Uh, indexing uh, is obviously the right thing to do. It should have been done in the first place, but uh, everybody knows that if you index, you're basically building in a tax increase. Um, there, there are either, even further complications. Uh, the uh, federal government at the same time has been giving uh, income tax uh, uh, benefits, credits, if you buy an electric car or a hybrid car. Well, electric cars don't spend any money at the gas pump, so they're not contributing at all. So the government is working against uh, what should be a preferred goal. The states, uh, if you go to the gas pump and you buy your gasoline, uh, the federal gas tax uh, is 18.4 cents per gallon. Uh, but in quite a few of our states, the uh, state gas tax is several multiples of that. So the states are already used to uh, uh, raising revenue through the, um, the gasoline tax. And a lot of them uh, in the past several years, because of the pinch they've been feeling, have been raising gasoline taxes. So if gasoline prices are going up due to taxes, it's not totally the federal government, but the federal government has left the um, state governments a little little choice. And uh, that that's why I say I, 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 there's going to be a shift from federal to, to state. It's not going to be long before it's going to be very transparent. Well, you know, I'm wondering if maybe then there are 
smaller, less expensive things that governments could do to improve our infrastructure situation. Like for one example, I've heard uh, that something as simple as getting more drivers to zipper merge could make a real difference. And, and for listeners who don't know, a zipper merge is when the lane is closed, instead of getting over as soon as possible, you drive right up to the closing point and then you take turns merging into a single lane. I mean, are, are there things like that that we're not doing that might make an appreciable difference, do you think? Oh, sure. Every little bit helps. Uh, uh, I've always been impressed in driving in, in Great Britain, how people, uh, uh, they don't exactly zipper merge, but the, uh, the cones, the traffic cones that tell you that the lane is cutting down from two to one, let's say, uh, the drivers get over much further ahead of uh, the crunch point. So they don't. A crunch point doesn't develop, uh, but in America, on a lot of roads at least, uh, everybody seems to want to go as far up as possible and then create this this problem. Uh, sure, something like a zipper merge would would work, but it, it, here we're getting into cultural factors too. Uh, is it in the American driver's blood to uh, go along with something like this? I've seen many situations where uh, there's a uh, real slowdown because of this merging. And uh, large, large trucks will stay halfway on this uh, lane and halfway on the next lane to prevent the uh, cars from going ahead, to force cars to uh, wait their turn, so, so to speak. Uh, but, but that only you know, goes so far. It's, it's, I, I believe it's, it's sort of a cultural thing. And I, I don't know if anybody's ever gotten a ticket for not, you know, um, doing it properly. Well, you, you mentioned cultural things. Immediately, I thought about roundabouts, too, which I know are really big in Europe, but it seems like American drivers don't exactly. You, you see a roundabout and half the drivers are thoroughly confused, even, even though when it's used properly in many instances, it can be a lot more efficient, certainly. Yeah, there are actually increasing numbers of roundabouts in my experience here in the U.S., uh, but, but you're right, the drivers don't seem to know how to handle them, and which, you know, does away with all the potential benefits. But yeah, if, if you can get, uh, get used to them, uh, they, they are a, a wonderful uh, way to expedite uh, traffic movement. Uh, basically, uh, uh, avoid real snarls, right, let's say. Right. So moving kind of back to the macro level, there's been a lot of talk about the possibility of a big infrastructure bill at the federal level. Uh, the number of trillion dollars has been thrown around. I mean, uh, I'm just wondering if, if you if you could uh, kind of sketch out your ideal infrastructure bill in just the broadest strokes, obviously, what would that look like? What would it focus on? Well, I'd have to uh, put aside my, um, I guess, my predilection for roads and bridges and recognize that infrastructure is more than just roads and bridges. It's also airports and water supply and sewers and all that stuff. And uh, my, my uh, book on infrastructure concentrates on roads and bridges, so I'm not as uh, much of an authority on the broader infrastructure issue. But uh, if I could just 
look at the roads and bridges as uh, paradigms for all of the infrastructure. Uh, I would I would like to see it include uh, real teeth so that the there, the abuses that we know go on now and have been going on for so long uh, are are really discouraged. Uh, uh, as I said, you know, the government, the federal government may contribute the lion's share of the cost of a project, but then typically uh, the state highway department will oversee the project and uh, therefore be responsible for making sure it's done right, that it's, uh, you know, uh, no corners are cut, that uh, the specified materials, the quality of those materials is what is used and so forth, and uh, no graft and corruption are taking place. That would be the kind of stuff I'd like to see in an infrastructure bill. Now, those are more difficult things to legislate. You know, it's hard to legislate morality and so forth. I've heard all that, but but you ask about ideals. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, well, you, ideal. Well, well, you know, it's it kind of interesting because you mentioned that because there are some people who say, well, given the these problems that seem to be to some people endemic, then a solution that oftentimes you hear, at least from from some conservatives, is why don't we just go ahead and privatize it and the state can sell off essentially to some private concern and they have to take care of maintenance and so forth. And then the market will just basically do what the market does and we'll be in a much better situation. I mean, do, do, do you, do you see more of that? And, and if so, do you think it's a, a good development? Well, there can also be corruption in the private sector for, for one thing. Uh, and the, the privatization in a way is a misnomer because it usually uh, these days, uh, in the U.S. at least, we don't speak of privatization so much as public-private partnerships. So the uh, the government is still has a has a hand in it, and uh, the 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 government or the representatives of the government uh, who are entering into this agreement with private investors uh, should have the uh, the wherewithal to uh, uh, and uh, come out of negotiations with a contract that is fair to everyone, both sides, to the investors and to the taxpayers that they they represent ultimately. Um, that again brings back to this problem of legislating morality. Uh, it's hard to do, but it's what really has to be done. And the way you do it, of course, is uh, come down hard on those that don't play the game fairly. And uh, sometimes it's pretty obvious that people are not playing it fairly. And, and don't get me wrong, but it's not that they're never um, uh, uh, called to uh, answer for their actions. They are, they're convicted, they're put in jail, but not nearly as much as I believe uh, probably they should be. Okay. Let's leave it at that. Uh, but the public-private partnerships, the, often the uh, private side, the investor side, has uh, an unfair advantage in negotiations of what the contract is going to be uh, because they have 
first of all, more experience. Um, and secondly, uh, they, uh, they, 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 um, they're watching out for their investment more than those representing the government on the other side uh, are looking out for federal money. Uh, people that work, and work for and represent the government aren't always you know, treating that money that they're negotiating over or spending uh, as if it were theirs. Uh, but not theirs, of course, but I'm saying they, they should represent the people uh, that uh, pay the tax, that put that source of money at disposal uh, with the same uh, oh, deciduousness that they would their own bank account, Yeah. Well, I, I certainly agree with you. And that's, it's interesting in, in all the, the reading and talk I've heard about infrastructure, a call for a greater morality and cracking down on, on corruption. That's one thing I really haven't heard nearly, uh, nearly that much about. So I think that's a, uh, an important thing to bring up. Uh, now I just have one final question for you uh, for, for listeners who are interested in maybe getting a deeper understanding of, of these sort of issues. Um, what are there any, you know, books, authors, sites, or other resources you'd recommend? I mean, in addition to your work, work, of course, which I think everyone should definitely check out. I've been a fan. Uh, I think I, I think I've your first book of yours was the pencil book, I believe. And since then, I've been a big fan of of all your stuff. But do you have any other recommendations for folks? Uh, well, my first book was actually Two Engineers Human, the one I talked about earlier. Um, the uh, uh, I read so much about the infrastructure. Uh, it's hard to pick out a few things, but I would say if someone is interested, uh, just Google infrastructure and, uh, and uh, follow what comes up. Uh, and I would advise subscribing. Uh, if you're interested in roads and bridges, for example, subscribe to some of these daily digests of what's happening around the country. Sometimes it's broken down by states even. Uh, and these are these are um, published by well the American Society of Civil Engineers uh, has a daily digest. Uh, the Department of Transportation is a is a good source. That's the government, of course. Uh, the the administration, the Trump administration, issued a uh, a document about a month or so ago. It's uh, 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 I guess an outline of, of its thinking on the infrastructure. Um, it it, ans it asks all the right questions, in my opinion, in that that document. Uh, it's 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 not that long a document. It's about eight or ten pages, um, but it lays out what the issues are quite well. Whether you know that's enough just to lay out the issues. Um, you know, that depends on your politics sometimes. Uh, there, there have been a lot of books lately. Uh, I'm, I'm not in my study right now, so I can't uh, look at my bookshelf and, and read them off. Uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, there, is a, there is a site called Infrastructure Today, I think. Or, uh, it, it, there are just so many of these things, and 
<laughs> I've talked to so many of them, just like I'm talking to you, but uh, I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember exactly the citations, and I certainly can't remember their URL. Yeah, right. No, not a problem. I will. I, I will. I will look all that up. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll look all that up, and certainly, well, the 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 sites, the sources you mentioned, I'll make sure that we have links for those on the show notes. So uh, I think that's definitely more than enough to get people who are interested started. So, so with that, we we will close. Uh, Dr. Henry Petrowski, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. Da Vinci, book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And the first hour is on them. SeatGeek, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase by downloading the SeatGeek app or going to seatgeek.com and entering promo code politicsguy. You know, listener support is a huge help to us. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our really great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything at all, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets that we make on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really does help. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're, finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.